Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the January 29th reading of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot going on in the sports world, both on and off the field. We have the AFC and NFC Championship Games. The Australian Open has drawn to a conclusion. And we have voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame Class of 2024. So let's jump right in. Many of you tuned in to see the AFC and NFC Championship Games. And I can feel your disappointment when the Lions came up short. This article by Eric Woodyard, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out this morning, January 29th, on ESPN.com from Santa Clara, California. An emotional Dan Campbell strolled out of Levi Stadium on Sunday evening with his arm wrapped around veteran quarterback Teddy Bridgewater after his team fell to the San Francisco 49ers 34-31 in the NFC Championship game. Despite the loss, the third-year Detroit Lions coach continued to hold his head high, and he said that he had no regrets about two critical failed attempts on fourth down in the second half. It's easy hindsight. I get it. I get that, but I don't regret those decisions, and it's hard, Campbell said. It's hard because we didn't come through and it wasn't able to work out, but I don't. And I understand the scrutiny I'll get. That's part of the gig, but it just didn't work out. After a dominant first half by the Lions gave them a 17-point lead, things turned on their head in the second half, including a third quarter in which they were outscored 17 to nothing, their worst point differential in a quarter this season. Rookie running back Jamar Gibbs had a costly fumble with 5.15 remaining in the third quarter, and the Lions had three dropped passes in the second half. A few third downs we wish that we could have converted, says Lions wide receiver Amon Ra St. Brown, who had seven receptions for 87 yards. We went for it on fourth down a few times, and I wish we could have had those. They played well on defense that second half, We were still moving the ball quite a bit, a turnover and whatnot. We both had one turnover, so it was tough. One of Campbell's decisions to go for it was on fourth and two from the San Francisco 28-yard line with 7.03 left in the third quarter. Lions quarterback Jared Goff's pass went incomplete to veteran wide receiver Josh Reynolds. ESPN Analytics slightly favored the decision to go for it, with a 90.5% chance to win the game, as opposed to attempting a field goal, a 90.3% chance of winning the game. The other decision on fourth and three at the San Francisco 30-yard line with 738 remaining in the fourth quarter was also considered a toss-up according to ESPN's model, which leaned very slightly toward going for it. Goff threw an incomplete pass to St. Brown. Campbell generally isn't afraid to pull the trigger on fourth down situations. The Lions went for it on fourth down 34% of the time during the regular season, the highest rate of any team this century, according to ESPN Stats and Information Research. 
Goff said that he is all in on Campbell's decisions to go for it, but noted that the Lions have to convert. I love it. Keep us out there. We should convert, said Goff, who completed 25 of 41 passes for 273 yards and a touchdown. He believes in us. I don't know what the numbers are, but we had a lot of big-time conversions this year that changed games. But it can change a game if you convert them, and we didn't, and that's part of the reason why we lost. Prior to this season post-run, the Lions hadn't won a playoff game since 1991. Campbell said that Sunday's defeat felt like getting your heart ripped out, that the bar has now been raised within the organization. It's Super Bowl or bust, says Detroit linebacker Alex Azzalone. That was our mindset this year, even though the outside people didn't necessarily think that or believe it. But inside our team, that's our standard, and that should be our standard going forward. After failing to reach the playoffs last season, the Lions tied the franchise mark for most wins in a single season at 12. However, they now have lost 12 straight road playoff games, the longest such streak in NFL postseason history, with their last away win coming in the 1957 divisional round against 49ers. As a player, Campbell appeared in the Super Bowl during the 2000 campaign with the New York Giants, but never won a title. After Sunday's game, he told his players how difficult it is to go on deep playoff runs and how they would have to capitalize on this momentum in the future. The goal, of course, is to go even further next year. Look, I told those guys, this may have been our only shot. Do I think that? No. Do I believe that? No. However, I know how hard it is to get here. I'm well aware. It's going to be twice as hard to get back to this point next year than it was this year, Campbell said. That's the reality. And if we don't have the same hunger and the same work, which is a whole other thing, once we get to the offseason, then we've got no shot of getting back here. I don't care how much better we did or what we add or what we draft. It's irrelevant. It's going to be tough. But then our division's going to be loaded back up again. You're not hiding from anybody anymore. Everyone's going to want a piece of you, which is fine. So it's hard. You want to make the most of every opportunity. And we had an opportunity and we just couldn't close it out. And it stings. Yes, it'll sting for a long time. All right, moving over to the AFC side. This article by Jameson Hensley, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out this morning as well on ESPN.com. Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson was so infuriated by throwing an interception in the end zone in the fourth quarter that he ripped off his helmet with both hands and slammed it to the ground while walking to the sideline. For the presumptive NFL Most Valuable Player, Another season filled with promise ended with a thud in the postseason. Jackson and the AFC's top-seeded Ravens struggled to move the ball and committed three turnovers in their 17-10 loss to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. The loss drops Jackson's to two wins against four losses in the postseason. I'm not frustrated at all, Jackson said. I'm angry about losing. We are a game away from the Super Bowl. We've been waiting all this time, all these moments for opportunity like this, and we fell short. 
But I feel like our team was going to build this offseason, going to get it right, get better grind, and try to be in this position again, but on the other side of victory. Jackson had looked nearly unstoppable entering the first home AFC championship games in the Ravens' 28-year existence. In winning his past seven starts, including last week's divisional victory, Jackson had Baltimore averaging 33.9 points per game. Then, in Jackson's first conference championship game appearance, he did not resemble the game's top player, and the Ravens tied a season low in points scored. Baltimore became the first team in 20 years to lose a conference championship game when holding the opponent to 17 points or less. We're mad, Jackson said. Offense, we didn't put nothing on the board. We scored once. That's not like us. We drove the ball down the field. That's cool, but we've got to put points on the board. I feel like my team just angry, not frustrated. We just angry. We know how hard we work to get here. Jackson is the betting favorite to win his second NFL MVP after producing career highs with 3,678 yards passing and a 67.2 completion rate. The Ravens were considered the most dominant team in the NFL this season by going 6-0 against teams that entered the week at least three games over 500 and beating them by an average of 26 points. But on Sunday, Jackson reverted back to his mistakes in previous post-seasons. In his four playoff losses, he has now averaged 10.5 points, totaling four touchdowns and eight turnovers. There are certain moments that define you, and this is just one that'll be in his career, says Ravens wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. The greats have all been through tough times, and I don't think this is going to stop him from wanting to get to his ultimate goal. If anything, he's going to work even harder. And Beckham added, he wants it bad. I never had seen anybody so locked in and just in the flow and in that era. I just felt like it was his time. And like I say, sometimes things happen in life and it doesn't go the way that we plan. And it's just about what you do from here. Jackson struggled to extend drives. On third downs, he was one of six for seven yards with two sacks. Jackson had also had problems with the Chiefs' passing rush. He completed a season-low 40% of his passes against the Blitz. I told him to stand up tall, says Ravens coach John Harbaugh. He had a great season. His performance today was all heart. He fought. He went out there and he gave everything he had. So I don't think that that's anything that I'd be disappointed in. Jackson has been fixated on leading the Ravens to a championship for years. When he was drafted by Baltimore in 2018, he says they're going to get a Super Bowl out of me. Believe it. But despite leading Baltimore to the playoffs in four seasons, including two number one seeds, Jackson has not been able to advance the Ravens to a Super Bowl. Honestly, what hurts me the most is that I wanted to get him the recognition that he deserves, says Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. It's a team sport, but that guy was the main guy I was playing for. Honestly, this was his opportunity to be able to write some of that stuff off and move on to the next thing. That's why it hurt, because you want to see people like that, teammates that you love and care about, get what they're supposed to get. And that just didn't happen today. 
Here's an interesting statistic in the NFL world. Chiefs' Travis Kelsey sets an NFL record for the postseason receptions. This article by Adam Teicher. He's an ESPN staff writer, and the Associated Press also contributed. This article appeared in publications worldwide on January 28th yesterday from Baltimore. Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey set an NFL record for career postseason receptions during the AFC Championship game against the Ravens on Sunday. An eight-yard catch from Patrick Mahomes in the first half gave Kelsey 152 postseason catches, moving him past wide receiver Jerry Rice for the most in NFL history. The catch was Kelsey's seventh in the game. His 19-yard touchdown reception put the Chiefs ahead 7-0 in the first quarter. Kelsey also ranks second to Rice in playoff touchdown catches. Rice has 22 scores, while Kelsey has 19. Kelsey came into the game with 1,694 receiving yards in the playoffs, trailing only Rice with 2,245 in the NFL record book. And of course, I'm sure somewhere along the way, someone's going to write an article about the Taylor Swift effect, but we'll see. For all you Bronco fans, this article is an interesting dive into Russell Wilson. This article by Andrew Mason, he's a senior Broncos writer, came out on January 24th, and it appeared in denversports.com. Could Russell Wilson stay in the AFC West? One NFL team executive predicts precisely that, according to a report from ESPN's Jeremy Fowler. And with Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert entrenched with the Kansas City Chiefs and the Los Angeles Chargers, respectively, that leaves only one possibility for Russell Wilson within the division. The Broncos' longtime rivals in silver and black, now based in Las Vegas. The Raiders need a veteran, and they are one of Wilson's original teams that he wanted to go to. But there's more to Russell Wilson becoming a Raider than that. He'd stay in the AFC West, West Coast, and Wilson's wife, Sierra, can do a Las Vegas residency as a live performer, the executive said, and this executive remained unnamed. Should the Broncos move on from Russell Wilson, as expected, one of the potential candidates could be current Raiders quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo. He started the season opener in Denver, guiding the Raiders to a 17-16 win but injuries sent him to the sideline, and by the time he returned to health, the Raiders had rookie Aiden O'Connell in the lineup. O'Connell started 10 games in his rookie campaign, including the final nine in succession. That included the Raiders' 27-14 season-ending win over the Broncos, in which he outdueled another understudy-turned-starter, Denver's Jared Stidham. As for Garoppolo, he posted a 77.7 passer rating and a 33.9 QBR over six 2023 starts for the Raiders. Both figures were the lowest of his career for any season in which he started at least one game. Like Wilson's contract, Garoppolo's deal comes with a significant dead money hit for the Raiders, 
Although the $28.3 million figure is a relative ebb tide compared to the $85 million tsunami confronting the Broncos with Wilson's contract, the Raiders can further dilute the damage to their 2024 cap by spreading the hit over two years. Signing Wilson would likely come with a minimal cap figure for any other team as Wilson's contract contains offset language. So effectively, Wilson could maintain the base salary given to him by the Broncos with his new team giving him a league minimum contract. And one can only imagine the reception that would await Wilson in Denver if he returns in silver and black. As benign as it seems, fantasy football has its share of issues as well. This article by David Purdom, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on January 25th on ESPN.com. An employee for a fantasy football website has been fired for being involved in a cheating scandal during a prestigious NFL playoffs tournament with a six-figure first prize. The National Fantasy Football Championship acknowledged last Wednesday in a post on its website that an employee used internal controls to make advantageous changes to a contestant's roster after games had kicked off, including swapping in a player who had already scored a touchdown. Recently, with help from reporting by a public source, we successfully revealed a post-deadline move in one of our NFFC postseason hold'em contests that was detected and quickly confirmed, resulting in Sports Hub being able to take immediate action to resolve the issue without any impact to the results of the contest, wrote NFFC founder Greg Ambrosius, a fantasy sports industry veteran. As a result of its internal investigation, an employee was terminated and a contest participant has been banned from further play on our platforms. Sports Hub is the parent company for the National Fantasy Football Championship, a longtime tournament operator. The names of the employee and the contestant involved have not been revealed by the company. The Hold'em contest featured a $150,000 first prize and attracted 1,521 entries. Among the contestants was a group of fantasy players featured on the Ship Chasing podcast. They first spotted the issue and brought it to the attention of the tournament operators. Pete, Pete Overzet, who's 36 and an experienced fantasy football player, said his group found the issue while attempting to differentiate its roster from the lineup of the contestant in question. It wouldn't have stood out unless you were intimately familiar with how the contest works, over Zets told ESPN. I think this is incredibly damaging to the fantasy industry, he added. We're in an era where people want to jump to conspiracy theories. Now, not only do you know that it can occur, but it did occur. And I think that's going to spread the seeds of distrust. The contestant, according to the NFFC, swapped one player in both the wildcard and divisional rounds of the playoffs, moves that were worth approximately 20 points each to the entry, which was in fourth place after Sunday's games. An hour into the second of two wildcard games on January 20th, the user switched Dolphins running back Raheem Moster for Packers running back Aaron Jones. 
In the first game, Mostert rushed for 33 yards on eight carries in Miami's loss to the Chiefs. Jones got off to a hot start against the Cowboys and finished with 118 rushing yards and three touchdowns in the Packers' upset victory. Jones also rushed for 108 yards following in the following week in Green Bay's loss to the 49ers in the divisional round. The next week in the divisional round, the same contestant switched out Chiefs receiver Rashi Rice for Travis Kelsey after the Kansas City star tight end scored a touchdown in their win over the Bills, according to a source with direct knowledge of the situation. The contestant was disqualified from the tournament, which will continue. Nothing is more important than the integrity of a pay-to-play contest, Ambrosius told ESPN in a phone interview. We have built up 20-plus years of integrity through transparency and everything that we've done. And by one action, it's put all of it into question. It's put me and everybody associated with our company in question. We're doing everything we can to make sure that we know everything about what happened, let people know, and to make sure that this never happens again. Well, Ravens coach John Harbaugh will have company with his brother Jim. This article by Jeremy Fowler, he is a senior NFL national reporter. It appeared on January 25th. Is Jim Harbaugh the coach to bring the Chargers to a Super Bowl? The Los Angeles Chargers landed arguably the top candidate last Wednesday in the coaching cycle. Jim Harbaugh, a man who's turned around every team that he's coached. The past two decades bear it out. Went to the University of San Diego in 2004, within three years, back-to-back 11-win seasons. Went to Stanford in 2007, within four years, a 12-1 season and an Orange Bowl victory. Went to the San Francisco 49ers in 2011, immediately rattled off three double-digit win seasons and a Super Bowl appearance. And over nine years at Michigan, three 10-win seasons out of four, and then a lull, a near firing, followed by a three-year stretch of dominance culminating in a national title. A coaching convention would be fortunate to collectively have these numbers. And now Harbaugh's tasked with building a winner in Los Angeles, which has an elite quarterback and a history of decent seasons, but no championship hardware to show for it, along with fresh memories of clumsy finishes, high injury rates, and a culture of charging. The AFC West just got infinitely more interesting with a Harbaugh-Justin Herbert duo facing off with the Chiefs Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes twice a year go along with the optimism of Sean Payton era in Denver and Antonio Pierce's galvanizing presence in Las Vegas, the job doesn't come without questions for both sides. So we'll see how that shapes up as the next season unfolds. Turning to hockey for a moment, the Colorado Avalanche Nathan McKinnon nets a rare natural hat trick. It's the second in Avs history. This article by Will Peterson, he's a Denver sports analyst, and it came out on January 24th, and it appeared in denversports.com. Colorado Avalanche superstar Nathan McKinnon is at it again. This time, he's making extremely rare abs history. 
McKinnon posted just the second natural hat-trick for Colorado since the franchise relocated from Quebec nearly 30 years ago. A hat-trick is when you score three goals in a game. A natural hat-trick is three straight tallies uninterrupted by the other team or your own. McKinnon pulled that off against the Washington Capitals on Wednesday night, taking the score from 1-0 to 4-0 in just under seven minutes during the second period. Avalanche legend Joe Sackett is the only other accomplished is the only other one to accomplish the feat for the team, doing it back in 2003 in a game at Columbus. McKinnon also broke Sackett's record for most games in a row at home with a point. McKinnon now has a point in all 24 Colorado home games this season. Sackett did it in 23 straight games during the 2000-2001 season. So here are the three goals that came back to back to back. McKinnon is now the favorite to win the Hart Trophy, according to NHL writers, and this performance should only help. He's playing on a different level than anyone in the league and doing something that no other Avs player has done in more than 20 years only validates that further. The Avalanche were up 4-0 on Washington after two periods with fellow stars Hale McCarr and Mikko Rantanen both assisting on at least two of the goals and Rantanen with a helper on all three. What a special time to be a hockey fan in the Mile High City and how lucky the franchise is to have Nathan McKinnon. McKinnon added a fourth goal in the third period, helping Colorado secure a 6-2 win. It's McKinnon's second fourth four-goal game of the year and he's still the only player in Avalanche history to accomplish that feat. Oh, what a night. Turning to the NBA, this season has certainly been one of high-scoring games, and this next article just illustrates that further. This article is uh, compiled by the Associated Press and ESPN News Services on January 26th, and it appeared in publications worldwide. Dallas Mavericks star Luka Doncic had a night to remember last Friday, lighting up State Farm Arena for a career-high 73 points and a 148-143 victory over the host Atlanta Hawks. It marked the highest-scoring game in the NBA this season, passing the 70-point performance by Philadelphia 76ers center Joe Embiid on Monday against the San Antonio Spurs. It also tied Wilt Chamberlain and David Thompson for the fourth highest output in NBA history. Chamberlain, who owns the NBA record with 100 points in a game, also had a 78-point outing, while Kobe Bryant finished with 81 points on January 22nd of 2006. Those names are special, Doncic said. It's unbelievable. Friday night marked the NBA's 15th 70-point game, and Doncic is the 10th player to reach that plateau. A three-point play with 258 remaining gave Doncic 70 points, with Dallas leading 140 to 136. He added another three-point play to cap his effort. Doncic, who averages 34.6 points per game, said the performance ranked probably at the top in his career, but added that he was just focused on getting the win. We've been struggling lately, he said of the Mavericks, who had lost 
three straight games before Friday. The mindset was to get a win, and we played great. Donchick's epic night included 41 points at halftime, which broke Dirk Nowitzki's franchise record for points in a half. He reached 57 points by the end of the third quarter and then opened the fourth with eight straight points. Donchick scored 23 points in the second quarter after opening with 18 in the first. He finished 25 of 33 from the field, including 8 of 13 from the three-point range, and converted 15 of 16 free throws. He was hot. He was going, said Trey Young, who led Atlanta with 30 points. We were trying everything. We were trying to trap him. Josh Green scored 21 points for Dallas, but Doncic carried the offense. I've never seen anything like it, Green said. Doncic also had 10 rebounds and 7 assists. He became the fifth NBA player with at least 70 points and 10 rebounds in a contest, joining Chamberlain, who did it six times, Elgin Baylor, David Robinson, and Embiid, who did it on Monday. With the assists, no one in NBA history has as many points, rebounds, and assists in a game as John Dunsick did on Friday. Mavericks coach Jason Kidd, when asked if his game plan changed because Dunsick was so hot, said with a laugh, he is the game plan. Some say that they are a system and he is the game plan, Kidd said. His ability to make shots, create shots, find open guys, he did that at a high level tonight. He added, I've said this before, we can't take him for granted. Every night is special. He always does something. Sometimes we are a little bit tough on him because of the wins and losses, but what he does on the court is different than anyone else. Donchick's previous career high was 60 points set against the New York Knicks on December 27th of 2022. So here's a brief list of the all-time highest scoring games. And we'll start from the bottom. In 2024, it was Embiid with 70 points. 2017, David Booker with 70 points. In 1963, Wilt Chamberlain with 70 points. In 1960, it was Baylor with 71 points. In 94, it was Robinson. In 2023, it was Mitchell. And also in 2023, it was David Lillard. All with 71 points. Wilt Chamberlain is in the records again with 72 points in 1962, and then again with 73 points twice in 1962. David Thompson in 1978 with 73 points, and then uh, Luka Doncic with 73 points just on Friday. And then going up the scale, Wilt Chamberlain again with 78 points in 1961, Kobe Bryant with 81 points in 2006, and the leader in all of the highest scoring games is Wilt Chamberlain again with 100 points in 1962. And if you've been following basketball this year, there are a lot of really high scoring games. It's just it's amazing. Turning now to Olympic sports. This article came out on January 26th by the Associated Press, and it appeared in publications worldwide. 
Amber Glenn thought she'd thrown away her chances of winning her long-sought U.S. figure skating title when, after landing a dramatic opening triple axle on Friday night, the 24-year-old from Texas fell apart over the second half of her program. Then she watched Isabel Levito collapse right behind her. The defending champion fell three times during her own free skate, drawing an audible gasp from a rapt crowd in Columbus, Ohio. And when Levito's score was read, Glenn's tears of anguish turned to tears of joy. Her score of 210.46 points was enough to crown her the nation's best for the first time a full decade after she reigned as the U.S. junior champion. I mean, utter shock, Glenn said. It was definitely not the performance that I would have liked to have had tonight, and I know both Isabel and I are capable of so much more, but just the shock that all my hard work has paid off. Levito finished with 200.68 points, falling to third behind Josephine Lee, whose winning free skate gave her the silver medal. In the men's event earlier on Friday, Ilya Malinin made one of the toughest combinations in skating look easy and was rewarded with 108.57 points, giving him the biggest lead after a short program under the current scoring system in Nationals history. The 19-year-old Grand Prix final champion performed his Magdalena program opened with an effortless quad-toe loop, then landed the quad-let's-triple-toe combo before making a triple axle look like a skip across the ice. Upon hearing his scores, Melinen flashed a black-and-gold towel that read Quad God, his all-too-fitting nickname. I was definitely relieved after the performance, especially after some boot malfunctions the past few weeks, says Melinen who went back to an old pair this week, I was really grateful that I was able to get out there. The national championships continued on Saturday with the pair's free skate and the free dance. The defending U.S. champion, Malinen, is the only skater in the world to land a quad axle in competition. He did not have the four-and-a-half rotation jump listed in his planned free skate for Sunday, but there's always a chance that he pulls it out. I'll have to see how I'm feeling just mentally and physically, Malinen said. I think it would all depend on how I'm feeling, and I guess what my point of view is or how I feel about going into the free. Max Namoff, the 2020 junior national champion, was a distant but surprising second after his opening quad salco made up for a problem on his triple axle. He received 89.72 points in his quest for a podium spot after finishing fourth last year. As usual, Jason Brown brought down the house at Nationwide Arena despite a fall on his opening triple axle. The 29-year-old fan favorite, who skipped most of the season to stay healthy and prepare for nationals, recovered to land a triple flip and triple lutz triple toe combo while skating with his customary flair to adios by the British composer Benjamin Clementine. Brown earned 89.02 points as he seeks to become the oldest man on the podium since Todd Eldridge in 2002. It's crazy that the people I competed against are coaching people at this event, Brown said. That, to me, blows my mind, and the level of skating just continues to be elevated year after year, and I think that's incredible. 
Incredible is an apt way to describe what transpired in the women's free skate. Glenn, who trailed Levito by less than half a point after their short programs, landed a huge triple axel to open her program, a jump that very few women are willing to attempt. She followed with a triple flip, triple toe, and triple loop double toe combinations and a triple sow cow, all of which appeared to have her cruising toward a national title. As if on cue, the late program mistakes that have held Glenn back for years surfaced again. He short-changed the jump sequence by doing only a double lutz and finished with a single flip, and those two mistakes cost her a huge number of points. I saw my choreographer and I said, I am so sorry, Glenn said later. I didn't do nearly what she had for me in this program. Glenn watched from off the ice as Levito fell on her opening triple-let's-triple-toe combo and then appeared to get back on track by nailing her next three jumping passes, but then came a fall on her triple flip and another on her triple loop, and by the time she spun to her finish in the middle of the ice, Levito was burying her face in her hands and fighting back tears. When the scores were read, Levito was left in third place, and Glenn had replaced her as U.S. champion. I know I have so much more left in me, Glenn said. Ten years ago, I won junior nationals, and the world of expectations was put upon me, and it crushed me. And now, coming back ten years later and having this, it's incredible. And in other skating news, this article appeared in the Reuters News Services on January 26, and it too appeared in publications worldwide. American speed skater Jordan Stoltz broke the men's 1,000-meter world record on Friday night at the ISU World Cup event in Salt Lake City. The 19-year-old Stoltz won his race in 1 minute 5.37 seconds to improve on the previous mark of 1 minute 5.69 seconds set by Russia's Pavel Bulinzikov at the same venue in 2020. So congratulations to Jordan. As an aside to Amber Glenn's victory, she also has become the first LGBTQ plus woman to win U.S. Women's Figure Gating Championship. This article is by Brianna McKay, and it came out January 27th in the Columbus Dispatch. Glenn's victory makes her the first openly LGBTQ plus skater to win the women's title. Being open, being the first openly queer women's champion is incredible, Glenn said. When I came out originally, I was terrified and I was scared that it would affect my scores or something, but I didn't care. It was worth it to see over the last couple of years, the amount of young people that feel more comfortable in their environments at the rink. So congratulations again to Amber Glenn. And the rest of the article was basically a recap of what we had already learned. So we look forward to seeing more of her and at the Olympics. In downhill skiing, Michaela Schifrin avoided a ligament damage from a very serious crash that she had just a few days ago. This article by the Associated Press came out on January 26th, and it appeared in publications worldwide from Cortina di Ampizio in Italy. After one of the scariest crashes of her career, Michaela Schifrin is relieved that it wasn't worse. 
The American skier with a record 95 World Cup wins is, quote, pretty sore, end quote, her coach said, but it doesn't appear to have any ligament damage in her left knee. She won't race again this weekend, though, and it's unclear when she will return. She's actually quite good, says U.S. team coach Paul Kristoffic, after the Schifrin slammed into the safety nets at high speed during a World Cup downhill. She's positive, and in a certain way, she is relieved, because it could have been a lot worse. But she's pretty sore, as you are, as you are for most speed crashes, but she was quite upbeat about things. Schifrin lost control while landing a jump in a patch of soft snow on the upper portion of the Olympia delle Tofane course that will be used for the 2026 Milan Cortina Olympics. Then she slammed into the net at a high speed. Medics tended to Schifrin immediately, and she limped off the course, course with her left boot raised off the snow. As per the protocol in Cortina, Schifrin was loaded onto a helicopter and taken halfway down the mountain to a landing area for further evaluation. Then she was transported by ambulance to a hospital in Cortina. Initial analysis shows the ACL and PCL seemingly intact, says Schifrin team. Schifrin added on social media, thank you all for your support. She fell about 20 seconds into her run just before the narrow Tofana shush or shoot through rocks, walls of rock, which is the most characteristic feature of the biggest women's race of the season. It's tricky here, Christophic said, because you're landing it and it's a left-footed turn that has a pretty sharp drop, and she was carrying more speed than she did in the training run. And then she probably trimmed a little more line than she should have, and it pushed her about a meter too far left, and that's where the terrain change is quite abrupt. So it loaded the ski up like crazy, and that's when things started. She tried to save it, but she knew at that point where she, where she was in trouble, so she was actually trying not to hit the next gate, and that's when it just caught, and she went flying into the net. In an otherwise record-breaking career, Schifrin also had some high-profile mishaps at the Beijing Olympics two years ago when she didn't finish three of her five individual races. She doesn't fall often, Christophe said, but it can happen, and it just goes to show you how on-the-limit athletes push and how the courses push them, and they have to do what they, and what they have to do in order to compete. There are races every weekend until the season ends in March, so when she might return, Christophic wasn't sure. We're just going day by day at this point and treat what we've got and try to get her back up to speed. Other big names also crashed, but former overall champion Federica Brignone got up and skied down. Olympic champion Corrine Suter pulled up midway down her run, clutched her left knee, and was airlifted. Michelle Guisen, a two-time Olympic champion, hurt her right tibia and won't race again this weekend. In all, 12 of 52 starters didn't finish the race, which was won by Stephanie Valvenier of Austria. The downhill was held amid clear and sunny conditions and also in warm temperatures. Schifron and Brignone became the fourth and fifth former overall World Cup champions to crash in the past two weeks, 
following season-ending injuries to Alexis Kuntaral, Alexander Amot Kilde, and Petra Vihova. Kilde is Schifrin's boyfriend, and Vihova is her biggest rival. It's just part of the game, Kristoffic said. She doesn't have the speed mileage that a lot of the veteran speed skiers do. So it's always a learning process. You learn from successes and tough days, and you put that into the vault and lean on that as you move forward. Schifrin's crash overshadowed a big day for the rest of the U.S. team, which had five racers finish in the top 30 to score points. Jacqueline Wiles was 13th, Lauren Makuga was 16th, Bella Wright 18th, Keely Cashman 27th, and Trisha Mangan at 28th. Alrighty, we don't have much time left, so let's turn to baseball. The 2024 Hall of Fame class for the Baseball Hall of Fame has been announced. This article by Alex Gonzalez, and it was published on January 23rd on ESPN.com. The 2024 Hall of Fame class will include two of the best pure hitters of their era and one of the greatest, most indelible third basemen in all of baseball history. Joe Maurer, Todd Helton, and Andrian Beltre were elected by the Baseball Writers Association of America and results of which were presented from the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Beltre, who received support from 95.1% of the 385 writers who cast ballots, and Maurer, voted in by 76.1% of the BBWAA members, made it in their first year of eligibility. Helton, who came in at 79.7%, was making his sixth attempt. The three will be joined by Jim Leland, the 22-year manager who was voted in by the Contemporary Baseball Era Non-Players Committee in December at an induction ceremony in Cooperstown, New York, which will be held this coming July 21st. Gary Sheffield received 63.9% support in his 10th and final year on the ballot. Billy Wagner fell just short, receiving 73.8% in his second-to-last year of eligibility and thus missing induction by only five votes. Maurer, meanwhile, made it by only four votes. Andrew Jones at 61.6% and Carlos Beltran at 57.1% also received support from more than half of the voting populace. Players need 75% approval from voting members of the BBWAA, with those who receive less than 5% falling off the ballot. Beltre, who didn't make his first of four all-star teams until his age 31 season, received the fourth highest vote percentage for a third baseman in his first year on the ballot, behind only George Brett, Chipper Jones, and Mike Schmidt. I always wanted to be the best I could be, and I enjoyed playing the game, and I wanted to play hard, and with that came accumulating some stuff that put me in a position to be where I am today, Beltre said on a video conference. But I just loved the position, loved to play the game, and I was just happy to be out there competing with my peers. Beltre accumulated the third highest 
WAR rating ever among third basemen in a 21-year career that saw him play for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Seattle Mariners, Boston Red Sox, and most notably the Texas Rangers. He is among only four players throughout history, regardless of position, to reach 400 homers and 3,000 hits while also accumulating at least five golden gloves. Beltre will become the fifth Dominican-born player to enter the Hall of Fame alongside Juan Marichal of 1983, Pedro Martinez in 2015, Vladimir Guerrero in 2018, and David Ortiz in 2022. Beltre nearly won an MVP with the Dodgers in 2004 and starred for the Red Sox in 2010, but his career didn't fully blossom until he joined the Rangers as a soon-to-be 32-year-old in 2011. Over an ensuing six-year stretch in Texas, Beltre slashed a 308-358-516 war while accumulating 167 home runs, 563 RBIs, and a 32.4 F war rating, the seventh most in the majors. He earned three all-star selections, won two Silver Slugger awards, and received three Golden Glove Awards for Rangers teams that consistently competed for championships, carving his path to Hooperstown. Joe Maurer won batting titles in 2006, 08, and 09, becoming the only catcher in history to lead his respective league in batting average on three separate occasions. Voted American League MVP after a sensational 2009 season, Maurer is one of six catchers ever with at least three golden gloves and three silver sluggers. Unusually tall for his position at six foot five, Maurer batted 306 in a 15 year career spent entirely with the Minnesota Twins, accumulating 2,123 hits and 143 home runs. He joined Johnny Bench and Ivan Rodriguez as the only catchers to be voted into the Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility. I don't take this announcement lightly, Maurer told MLB Network. Just seeing the graphic of the two catchers on the first ballot, they're two of my favorites. I admired those guys and look up to those guys, and they got to compete against Pudge for years there in Detroit. Just have the utmost respect for the Hall of Fame and the players that went ahead of me and have done great things. I'm just so all over the place with emotions, but can't wait to get there and show my kids some of the history of this game, this beautiful game. Todd Helton saw his support increase dramatically in recent years from 52% in 2022 to 72.2% in 2023 and nearly 80% in 2024. His career numbers a 316, 414, 539 slash line, 2,519 hits, 369 home runs, and 1,406 RBIs, not to mention three Golden Gloves, put him in elite territory at his position. But voters have been turned off in past years by the offensive boost provided by Helton's home ballpark of Coors Field, where he spent his entire career with the Colorado Rockies. Helton nonetheless finished with a career 133 adjusted OPS, which neutralizes ballpark factors, tied for 32nd among first basemen 
who accumulated at least 3,000 plate appearances. You don't get to pick where you play, and you always want a hit better than your home park, said Helton, who carried a career OPS of 1.048 at his home and 855 on the road. I'm not embarrassed or anything by my home and road numbers. Going on the road after hitting in Colorado was hard. The ball breaks more, and it's a huge adjustment going through the season, going through that rigorous grind of being able to make those changes midseason. It's a good place to hit, but there are some drawbacks and toughness about going and playing there. Wagner, like Helton, also had seen his support grow of late, gaining nearly 23 percentage points in two years. The longtime closer, who spent nine of his 17 seasons with the Houston Astros, accumulated 422 saves behind only Mariano Rivera, Trevor Hoffman, Lee Smith, Francisco Rodriguez, and John Franco. He finished his career with a 2.31 ERA and struck out 33.2% of the batters he faced, third among pitchers who threw at least 750 innings. Wagner's nine seasons with 30-plus saves and a sub-3.00 ERA trailed only Rivera at 14, Hoffman and with 11, both of whom are in the Hall of Fame. Gary Sheffield was a nine-time All-Star and a five-time Silver Slugger who finished among the top ten in MVP voting six times and is one of only four players with 2,500 hits, 500 home runs, and 250 stolen bases, along with Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, and Willie Mays. But voters have soured on him because he was mentioned in the Mitchell Report investigating the prevalence of performance-enhancing drugs within the sport. Sheffield's case will turn over to the Hall of Fame's Historical Overview Committee, which will select ballots to be considered by the Contemporary Baseball Era's Players Committee for the class of 2026. These names ought to be familiar. The following eight players, all eligible for the first time, fell off of the ballot after receiving less than 5% support. Jose Batista, Victor Martinez, Bartolo Colon, Matt Holliday, Andrian Gonzalez, Brandon Phillips, Jose Reyes, and James Shields. And here is a favorite Todd Helton story as told by sports writer Tony Rennick to Brandon Stokely and Josh Denver on Stokely and Josh on radio station The Fan 104.3 FM. And this was on Wednesday, January 25th at Dodger Stadium. Todd Helton started the game with a full beard. He didn't get a hit. Next time he comes up, he has a Fu Manchu, doesn't get a hit. Third time up, mustache, doesn't get a hit. Fourth time up, in the game, he is clean shaven. By this time, he is so superstitious, and he ended up with two hits and a walk-off double. He was so maniacal about hitting, he would do anything to get a hit in that regard. He started the game looking like Grizzly Adams, and in the end, he looked like a 20-year-old kid going to his college prom. What a great story. Well, that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.